Welcome back to Sermon Notes. Michael here alongside Clark and our producer, Josh. And Clark, this week, as we continue our study in the book of John here at Fellowship Fayetteville, we're kind of turning the page backwards toward the beginning of the book as we sort of reset and shift gears a little bit. Yeah, I noticed that in our small group um, last night. I was in my community group, and we were reviewing John 15. And then when I showed up to my small group this morning, we were in John 2. Yeah. And so uh, we're going backwards, and there is a transition in our series, uh, Michael. We've got 21 weeks in John, and we just finished up the I Am statements, Mm -hmm. seven of those. And we're moving into a a new section um, to look at the miracles of Jesus. And we've identified seven of the 35 miracles that Jesus did that we're going to take a look at. And then later we'll have seven encounters uh, where Jesus engaged others um, with who he was and why he was worth believing in. And so that's how it breaks down. And if you're listening and you haven't gotten a copy of our John um, guidebook that has journal, um, a place to journal in, it has uh, some input on your uh, just a devotional guide, questions for your small group, this is a great time to pick that up if you haven't had For one. For sure. Yeah. yeah. We still have so, copies available, and it's a really useful tool. Yeah. So as we're thinking about now, John sort of highlights seven, we would call them miracles. He actually has different words that he uses to describe these supernatural things that Jesus does. Yeah, he does. And um, there's traditionally four words um, that are used to describe uh, what a miracle is. Um, in the New Testament. And the first word, if I can find my notes here, um, the first word is dunamis, and it, it relates to the idea of power, uh, supernatural power, the mighty works of God. And the focus is on um, God's uh, great power to do things that, uh, that amaze us. The other word that's used um, is terasa, and it means wonder. So that's why you, a lot of times you hear the, the idea of signs and wonders um, put together. And it emphasizes the extraordinary nature of an event. Um, it, it captures that idea of awe, where it, there might be a gasp in the audience when you see this thing happen. Um, the most common word that John uses is this word that's used for signs, Simeon. And uh, it's used primarily by John, and he uses it over and over again. And a sign... By definition, points us to something. That's why it's called a sign, right? And it tells us another message. And in this case specifically, um, pointing us to the person of Jesus to do these things. And so I, th- I think Michael, uh, it's instructive. A lot of times we get captured um, and enamored with signs. Even Jesus seemed to—I um, don't know if rebuke is the, is the right word—but he's he's always questioning them. You're always looking for signs when. They point to me, right? look at me. And so that's the word. And then another word that's used in some contexts is this word ergon, which just simply means works. It's the works of God. So they can be common or they can be great works of God. And so um, that should help us just kind of navigate this idea of miracle in our, in our context today. And so um, we find ourselves, this miracle, Michael, is it a very common event? Yeah. A wedding. And it's the event where we often hear this preached yeah. at weddings. Oftentimes the pastor will use John 2 to give a wedding message yeah. uh, because Jesus blesses 
a wedding with his presence, and he performs his first miracle there. Yeah, that's right. And so we find ourselves in a, it's a small, um, just outside Galilee, a small town called Cana, and it begins what some have referred to as the Cana cycle. Um, the first and second sign both happen in Cana, mm-hmm. and it basically takes us through John chapter 2 through the end of John chapter 4, where his second sign happens. And so he makes his way from Cana. Um, after this, he's down in Capernaum. He makes his way to Jerusalem. He clears the temple. Um, he makes his way back up to Galilee eventually and then loops back around to Cana, where he performs his second um, sign, where he raises the official son from, he heals him right. in that sense. And so, and, and then in chapter 5, we begin kind of a new cycle. We, we, you might call it the festival cycle. Right. Where he starts identifying himself with the different festivals, um, the different Jewish feasts. And so, but that's where we find ourselves here in Cana of Galilee. It's a, it's probably, it's a smaller town. And um, no doubt Jesus and his mother were friends of this family. And um, it's just maybe like you and me here in Fayetteville. We might pick up our family and head to a wedding on a Saturday evening. Right. Um, we, we think it's probably sometime in the springtime. And, um, and so they make their way here um, to the wedding. You were going to say something? Well, I was just going to say, so here's Jesus with his disciples, and uh, they get to this wedding, and his mom kind of, I don't know if she pulls him aside or grabs him in the hallway, but she lets him know there's a problem at this wedding. Yeah, and they're out of wine. Yeah. It's not a good look for a family. Big problem. Especially the the host of this event. And so... Um, it could bring shame and dishonor, uh, definitely a bad memory. You're known for the wedding that, 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 that ran out of wine. It's the one thing you got to get right yeah. um, in this context. And, um, and so she's concerned. It's interesting even just like, like any mother would do. She's concerned maybe for her friend that was connected to this family, and, uh, and she wanted to, to make it right. And so they have an interesting exchange. Yeah, Michael. Um, she says they have no wine in verse four. I'm looking at the ESV here. Yeah. It says Jesus said to her, "Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come." Is Jesus being rude to his mom? Now, would you not talk to Lee like that, Michael? <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. talk to my or mom. Or your mom? You definitely oh, wouldn't no. talk to your mom, Miss no, Pat, like that. Definitely not. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, when we read that, obviously, it's not a phrase that we would use in any context when we speak to. A woman of any age, um, in some, in many ways, in our culture, it would be very derogatory and condescending. But it seems as though there's a, there's a couple of things maybe at play here, um, woman, and then um, the idea. However, it's phrased in the NAS. It says, "What do I have to do with you?" Um, in in the Greek, it's "What to you? What to me?" And the most scholars have a hard time really interpreting what it actually means or how it's worded. Right. Um, but it seems like um, there's a change of relationship happening. It's actually the same word, my understanding, that's used at the cross as well. When Jesus at his lowest moment actually shows care and compassion for his mother, as he looks at John and says, behold your mother, and he looks at his mom and said, behold your son. Um, there's an empathy or compassion or a care for that. And so the word could be used in different ways based on its context. Right. And so it doesn't have to be taken in a negative way. Um, 
the thing, Michael, that I would probably lean into here is there seems to be a, a transition of relationship happening. I mean, his mom, uh, he's the oldest son, okay? And we think that Joseph probably isn't alive anymore. And I think she comes to him in some ways. She knows who that he's distinct and unique and that he's he's definitely setting himself apart in his deity. But if you were, you're the oldest son in right. your family, your mm-hmm. mom would, it would be natural for her to come to you in a moment like this and say, Michael, we need help here. Right. What are you going to do about it? And so I think you have just something as simple as that going on. Yeah. Um, but there's also this sense that Jesus is now, if he goes public in this moment, and he says it, he tells you why here. He says, um, my hour um, has not yet come. He's referring to something bigger that's yeah. happening. And I think he's there's a little bit of distance happening between him and his mother. Their relationship is changing, not just from a biological family perspective, but now spiritually speaking, he's about to increase what the idea of family is and give new definition to that spiritually speaking. Right. And so I think some of that is happening here. And then um, Augustine even notes that uh, she's got to learn how to relate to Jesus now, uh, not just as his mother, but his, as his disciple. And so I think there's a lot of things happening uh, behind the scenes here. And so I think it takes the edge off um, how strong it comes across, but it doesn't mean that he's not um, saying something that has some punch to it. And so, um, so anyway, there's, I think the my hour has not yet come, I think gives us some context for what's going on. Whatever happens, her mother or his mother still says to the servants, do what he tells you to do. She obviously expects him to do something. Yeah. And some, some believe that, um, you know, some miracles happen without any kind of sign of faith on behalf of the person seeking. Uh, some happen as, uh, people respond in faith after what has happened, some believe that her persisting in this is an act of faith right? Um, in her son to do something miraculous. And so um, that could be what's going on there as well. So, so she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you, and he tells them to take these six stone water jars. My translation says each one holds 20 or 30 gallons. Yes. It's, that is a lot of liquid. It's an unbelievable amount. Of liquid, yeah, and he's and you know, we don't know for certain that. I mean, John has writ, writing this later, and he's got eyewitness accounts, and him being one of them in many of these stories of what had happened here. Um, but there's a lot going on here with these stone water pots, Michael. Um, if you consider, even he notes the Jewish uh, custom of purification they were used for that they would they were cleansing pots they would use to wash before they would go into the temple. Right. And so you have that going on. And so you have um, potentially 180 gallons of water that he says fill up. In some versions, uh, use the uh, the phrase fill up to the brim. Yeah, that's what mine says. And so it could be that that was done so that there was no, uh, no trickery done. It's just the water was there. You could see it. It was up to the brim. Yeah. And then... What's interesting about this miracle, and um, again, by the way, uh, if you, depending on how many ounces are in a serving of water or wine that you might serve in a, uh, a setting like this, 
some have suggested that it was up to 2,400 individual servings of wine that came from these pots, which seems like a lot to That's me. That's a lot. Yeah. And, um, and also decent wine. Um, if you, and I'm not, I'm not good with my wines, Michael, <laughs> um, but at $50 for a good bottle of wine, it, it, in today's dollars, it might be close to $30,000 worth of wine that found itself in these pots by yeah. the end of the miracle. Oh, that's substantial. Yeah. I think for any wedding, especially a small town wedding. It's definitely a picture of abundance. Yes. And you see that all through the scriptures. Um, obviously there's warnings against the use of wine um, in, an, in, a, in an indulgent kind of way, in a drunken kind of way. Uh, but it's also pretty symbolic in the Old Testament for sure of God's blessing of abundance, grape harvest, um, wine uh, carries with us this gladness or joy. And I think that's part of what Jesus is breathing into this scene a little bit. There's a change happening. These old water pots represent something that's old. Right. And I'm bringing in the new. And the new is going to come with it, this hope of something better and blessing. Not just from a tangible or a harvest perspective, but something even better than good wine, yeah. And, the, it, and the, it's him. Yeah the uh, the master of the feast, he he probably knows what good wine is, even if you and I don't. Oh yeah. And he says most people serve the good wine at the beginning, and then when everybody's had their fill, then they bring out the the cheap stuff. Yeah. But he says you've kept the good wine until now. Yeah, it's an amazing, it's an amazing statement. I mean, you know, I. I think uh, I always love to live in the tension with questions that I still have, even after I teach a passage or do my own personal st study. And this is one of those. It's interesting. Um, the wedding thing makes sense to me because of the motif of, of marriage that runs through the scriptures. That I, I can go with that in this scene. But Jesus' first miracle seems to be in a place where people are indulging in ways that are likely sinful, right? Even, and he doesn't prohibit it, but he also doesn't—he doesn't condone it here in the text, at least. We know from other places that drunkenness is a sin, and indulgence in wine leads to all kinds of bad things, uh, um, too much of it. But here, he just—they're just in a real place in a real time at a real wedding, and he helps a family save face and gives them the best of wine at their wedding. Yeah. And um, so, you know, um, it's just an interesting collision of ideas, I think, that happened here. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Michael? Yeah, I do think yeah. it's I think it's a picture of, um, I think it's a contrast between the old purification program, the law, yeah. and the new way, um, which Jesus is going to further redefine wine at the Last Supper. That's right. And we're going to, even today as a church, we use juice here but right. to remember that, but that there's joy and feasting mm -hmm. around a wedding. And uh, I know this is where we're headed, but the Bible ends with a feast and That's a right. wedding uh, between his bride, the church, and Jesus. Yeah. And it's, you know, and we, we're, we talk about wine here a lot in this passage because that's part of the miracle. It's, it's not about the wine. It's about the person who produced the miracle. Yeah. Um, here. And so um, very interesting. And so we've got old, 
um, giving way to the new here in this first miracle. And as we, if you if you move through uh, chapters two, three, and four, uh, you have him presenting himself as the new temple, um, and then you have him interacting with Nicodemus and talking about the new birth, and and he heals um, you know the officials. Son, and so a lot of what is happening in John is this idea of the old giving way to the new, and I think this this wedding scene is previewing um, the old order of things and the new things that we have to hope in in that future wedding feast that you talk about. Yeah, and so uh, miracles um, they happen in a real time in a real place. We tell those stories, we document them, we celebrate Jesus in them but they also point us to something better in future that's coming. Right. And um, that's the good news of Jesus and what he has for us in the future in the new kingdom. And, of course, John's going to tell us at the end of this gospel that these things were written that we might believe, um, and that's exactly what happens. That's our, right. our passage ends, it says, and the disciples believed in him. That's right. Um, I think the NIV uses the word they put their faith in him. And Michael, for um, for the rest of our study, as we consider the miracles in this little seven sermon section, um, there is this pattern. Um, he performs a sign. Um, he manifests his glory in doing so, and there's belief that happens. And all these miracles are going to follow that type of pattern. Um, there's a sign, glory revealed, who he is, and then there's a response expected of belief. And here it's, I, I will, we can end with this, Michael. It says his disciples believed in him. It is interesting in John that uh, it's, this isn't the last time that we're going to see that phrase, his disciples believed in him. It's as if as he reveals himself through these signs and wonders and these miracles, they needed a constant reminder as they went that he's worth believing in. It's almost like, keep believing in me. I really am who I say I am. All the way to the cross, keep believing in me. Um, it, this, this belief that we're chasing in John is not a, only a one-and-done, hit-and-run, transactional moment. It's a, wow, he just, did, he just changed water into wine. He's different. He's worth following. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe in him. And then they're going to fade. <laughs> they're going to wonder. They're going to question. They're going to doubt. We see that with Peter all through this. And then he has to reassert, I do believe in you again. And I feel the same way a lot of days, Michael. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've put my faith in Jesus. I've trusted in him and what he's done on the cross and resurrection to, to bring me into his kingdom. But there's a lot of days where I have to keep believing that that is true sure, and that it's real for me today in the here and the now and that he's got something better. And so um, so anyway, 11 is instructive there in terms of you know, verse 11 and how it ends. Every one of us feels that when we sing, um, my heart is prone to, to wander. Lord, I yes. feel it. Yes. Um, here's my heart, take and seal it. Yeah, um, that's we, right. We all, we all feel that. And yeah. so these faith-building um, experiences for the disciples and for us. Um, and man, that's my prayer for us as we study these signs and miracles is that it's going to just increase our faith. And we're going to seek not the miracle, but the one who does the miracle. That's right. 
It's going to be a great, these next seven weeks are going to be great, Michael. And so uh, looking forward to our time and uh, wanted to just say thank you for joining us here on Sermon Notes. And we look forward to visiting with you next time.